I'm going to talk about what I was doing uh, while I came to write this, before I came to write this novel, uh, some of the themes and issues that kind of rose out of my life at the time, and then um, about how those things fed into the novel itself, and then, then I'll read. Um, so um, from 2002 to 2005, I was living in Berlin. And a couple of things happened during that time. Um, first, uh, shortly after I moved there, actually, George W. Bush, who was president of the United States then, uh, came for an official state visit, um, which led to massive protests. I mean, he was there for three days, and for three days there were 100,000 people on the streets of Berlin protesting in various ways his presence in the city. Um, lots of people calling him things like a fascist, a Nazi, calling him evil. Um, I wasn't entirely innocent of calling him some of those things. Um, and of course, at the same time, during this period, a lot of people in the United States, including George W. Bush and his government, uh, were calling the Taliban and Osama bin Laden and Islamic terrorists, who we knew, I think, even less about them than we do now, um, we're calling them fascists and Nazis and evil. Um, Islamic fascism. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that was going on at that time was the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, of course, the, the Afghanistan war was going on um, already in 2002, and the 2004 presidential campaign. And, and during this period of time, it seemed to me that this kind of rhetoric that I've just um, listed um, was exacerbated. People were using it even more and throwing terms around even more loosely. Um, it seemed that way to me at the time anyway. I think probably that's a reasonably accurate um, way of viewing that period of time. Um, that's just a, a kind of broad reminder of the things that were going on specifically in those years. Um, what I was actually doing in Berlin during this time, other than um, eating meals and sleeping, uh, was uh, working as a tour guide uh, in the city. I was giving tours of Berlin to English-speaking tourists, and so I was basically walking around all day, uh, visiting historical sites in the city, um, various types of sites, places where things actually happened. Um, and also monuments to various things that have happened in the course of the history of that city and that country, and basically explaining what happened, explaining German history to English-speaking tourists from all over the world. Um, so I was telling people about the Hohenzollerns, I was telling people about Friedrich the Great, I was telling people about Bismarck, about the Nazis, about the Cold War and divided Berlin and divided Germany, and so on and so forth. Um, at the same time, I was uh, reading histories of Berlin, basically doing research in order to do my job as well as I could. Um, I was talking to Berliners who seemed to be more than any other city I've ever been to, a people who like to talk about the history uh, of their city or are very willing and open about talking about the history of their city. People used to come up to me after I'd finished talking to my group of tourists and start telling me things that related to what they overheard me talking about in the middle of the city, I mean, just strangers coming up. This happened on several occasions, in fact. Um, people are in particular very keen in Berlin to talk uh, about, tell their stories about the, the recent history of Berlin, the GDR in particular, in East Berlin, the divided city. Um, also, of course, reading newspapers uh, in Berlin, and it seems to me there are quite regularly, um, not daily, but certainly weekly, uh, probably, stories in the newspapers in Berlin related in various ways to history. Um, um, reports of World War II bombs that are dug up on building sites or found at the bottom of lakes, which happens so often that they basically only merit a short paragraph these days in the, in the newspapers. But because the city's being rebuilt, it's being dug up all the time, lots of bombs being found. I mean, they said they found in London as well, but it was happening, it was astonishing regularity in Berlin. 
Um, also, just issues that were still current on related to things from the GDR, issues that were still current related to things like Bader Meinhof, the Rota Armee Fraktion, things like this. Debates about memorials that were being built or not being built or should be maybe built in the future. These kinds of things were constantly in the newspapers. Um, so that's just kind of a, an overview of the life I was living in Berlin. And now I want to move and talk briefly about some of the themes or issues that I saw and see as arising from all this. Uh, um, one of the key ones for me is that, that history in Berlin, it seems to me, is, is lived in the present tense. Um, what I mean by that is it's lived in the pre present tense, not only in the sense of, of that we inherit history, which I think is true of anywhere you live in London. There's you know, a statue of Cromwell in front of Parliament, which is a, a sign of certain things that have happened in the history of this country that we are now here living in particular ways as a result of. Um, but what I mean about the present tense in Berlin is that it's, it's not just that, not just the how we got here, um, uh, part of the present, but also how the issues of history are vital currently um, <clears throat> to anyone who actually lives in the city, in particular people who've lived their whole lives there. How they, these people construct a sense of their uh, selves as political, historical people, and also as private individuals. I think that issue is particularly complicated if you think of someone who lived in the GDR um, in light of Stasi files and, and the kind of spying that went on. Your sense of yourself as a private individual is a much more complicated thing than if it is if you're like me and you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Your sense of yourself as a private individual is a much safer, stable thing in, in a lot of ways. Um, what I'm trying to suggest is, and maybe a term that I would use to codify this, is that I think Berlin often seems like a hyper-historical city. History is always, always there, right in front of you, and you're, you're, you're kind of living with it all the time. Um, and I think the next two points I'd like to make are kind of <coughs> illustrations of what I mean exactly by that. Um, one thing is that walking around the city as I was on a daily basis, uh, and walking around it, I, mean, I tended to walk around it on my days off as well, but um, walking around it while you're very hyper-consciously thinking about its history, or indeed talking about its history to people, um, and the meanings of its various uh, places, it's, it's hard to escape a, a direct confrontation with the layers of meanings that tend to pile up at specific places uh, in the city of Berlin. And I just want to give two really quick examples. Um, there's so many of them, I just picked two more or less at random. Um, the first example I want to give is the victory column in, in Berlin, um, in the middle of the Tiergarten. If you haven't been to the city, you probably still might recognize it. Um, it's, a, it's a huge column. I can't remember how high, but it has a huge golden angel uh, of victory on the top. Now, this thing was originally uh, a commemoration of three wars in the 19th century that culminated in the 1871 unification of Germany as uh, a unified state, um, kind of under the leadership of Prussia and, and the Hohenzollerns. Um, so that was its kind of original uh, meaning, was this, this symbol of military victory and, and unification of a, of a, of a state. Um, it originally stood in front of the Reichstag, uh, the German parliament building. It was moved in 1938 to its current position in the middle of this huge park, the Tiergarten, um, by the Nazis as a part of the celebrations for Hitler's 40th birthday. And they also made it taller than it was originally. Um, then in uh, 1987, Vin Vendors, the filmmaker, brought out a film, Wings of Desire, which uses this same memorial um, in, as a symbol for some of the things that it's trying to work. I'm not going to go into a discussion of Wings of Desire, but um, that, again, made 
I think the symbol even more ambivalent, um, this memorial originally for a, ninth, a series of, of wars in the 19th century. Um, the next example I'd like to give is um, Goering's, um, Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe ministry, uh, which is right in the middle of the sea. It's not, not actually that far from the um, British embassy. Um, this was the headquarters of the, the Nazi Air Force. Of course, they were um, planning the you know, bombing raids in London, for example, in, in that building. It was also home to extravagant parties during the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Um, after the war, it became the headquarters of the SED, which was the um, ruling party of East Germany. Um, in 1953, there were mass demonstrations of the workers and people of um, East Germany in front of this building, which led to a massacre of many of them. Um, after 1989, it became the headquarters of the bureau that was responsible for selling off the state-owned businesses of the GDR to Western uh, and private companies. Um, and it's currently the finance ministry uh, of uh, the Republic of Germany. So even on a superficial level, just with these two examples, you can see there's quite a complicated and often very ambivalent set of meetings around particular places in the city of Berlin. Um, that's just two examples. Both of those examples feature in the novel uh, that I've written, although not in the chapter that I'm, that I'm reading today. Um, the next thing I want to <coughs> add to this picture is, is that during this time and thinking about things in these ways, I started coming around to a, a personal viewpoint, which is just my personal viewpoint. It's not certainly my original viewpoint. It's, it's not one that I hold alone. Um, I started more and more to see 1990 German reunification as a kind of lost opportunity of sorts. Essentially, um, the GDR was swallowed up by the um, Bundesrepublik and the euphoria of reunification. I don't suggest any kind of superior hindsight here. I don't think there was ever any way that that would have happened otherwise. But at the same time, it seems that at the time there was very little, if any, popular evaluation of what might be sensibly integrated from the GDR into a new kind of German Republic. Those, those questions didn't really get thoroughly discussed in any way because there was this, it seems obvious actually in hindsight, why not? There was this euphoric moment, people moved very quickly. With hindsight, it's easy to say too quickly, but you know, hindsight is a bit too simple. I'm not trying to be sort of smug or show some great insight about this. Um, a consequence of that though is, is that the victors, not only the victors of reunification, not only wrote the history, but they also wrote the future into law in some ways. And in doing so, they kind of effectively erased the cultural history of the GDR. Um, although I would say that, in, especially in the last 10 years or so, there's been quite a lot of work done, in particular the um, historian Stefan Bola, um, to sort of bring back the presence of that history, uh, the cultural history of the GDR, to make a uh, uh, presence, again, a, a presence of the history in, the, in, in uh, contemporary German life. Um, that's all the kind of background of what I was doing, the themes, as I said, that arose from what I was doing, things I was thinking about. Now I'd like to turn to talk about the novel itself and how all this disparate stuff actually um, gets shaped into a novel. It seemed to be going through the water pretty well as well. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that I never really, um, during those three years I was living there, intended to write a novel about Berlin. People tend to ask you when you're a writer and living in a city that they see as exciting, and I mean, Berlin certainly is an exciting city, are you going to write a novel about Berlin? And it, I always said, there's no way I'm going to write a novel about Berlin. I have no interest in doing so. You know, I want to write about America and politics and rock and roll. Um, 
But then at the same time, while I was living there, I, I started getting a bit obsessed with the, an image that popped into my head of a, a young woman being recognized by her dog, and the dog barking at her, but she not wanting to be recognized by it. And I started thinking more and more, I couldn't kind of shake this image out of my head, I couldn't, I started thinking more and more about why someone would want to be hidden from recognition from their own dog or their own family. There's an obvious literary parallel here with the Odyssey um, and Odysseus coming back to Ithaca and the, the only thing that recognizes him is his old dog that used to be a puppy when he left and now it's this old thing without teeth and it bites <coughs> its tail at him. I wouldn't want to say, I didn't consciously um, think of this image in that way, but I suppose it's a literary resonance anyway. Um, and the point is I couldn't get rid of this image and over time, and here I'm going to be a bit wishy-washy because most writers are about these kinds of things. Not That's not why, but it's just um, what happens. Um, it's just very hard to kind of account for the process of how this happened with any accuracy or detail or honesty, but over time I began to see this image as, as a, a moment around which I could construct a novel that kind of coalesced these themes and ideas that I've sketched out for you um, into a story. And, and in, the, in the final thing, that moment is actually quite a small moment in the novel, but it started out as the centerpiece of it. Um, and in a sense, though I certainly did not articulate it to myself in this way at the time, but in a sense I wanted to consider a way of shaping a story um, about Europe, not Europe beyond governance, as the sort of overarching theme of this lecture series says, but a Europe in spite of governance, if that distinction makes sense. Um, I wanted to think of a story that would speculate on meanings of governance, good governance, bad governance, and of history, good and bad, um, specifically in Berlin, but also with an eye to some wider context as well, um, and in particular, this thing I mentioned at the very beginning um, about George W. Bush and this kind of stuff, American power and American governance, and how that fits in to an idea uh, of Europe as well. It seems obvious, because I'm an American living in Europe, that I would probably think about those things, but um, that's how I wanted to bring a lot of different concerns into one story. Um, eventually, this led to the, the planning and plotting and writing of a novel that's set approximately 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it concerns a group of German terrorists, some from East Berlin, some from West Berlin, who are blowing up the historical monuments of the city. Um, I'm going to talk a bit more about the basic plot later, just before I read the chapter. Um, but just before I do that, I want to talk about this idea of memory between literature and history, because that's what it says <laughs> on the projection. Um, in the previous lecture in the series, if you were here, Dan Stone said, and I'm going to quote Dan Stone, he said, he wanted to suggest that contemporary literature contributes to shaping European collective memories of World War II and the Holocaust in ways that parallel debates amongst historians. I, I think he made a very good case for exactly that. Um, and I certainly don't want to disagree with him, especially because he's not here to fight back. Um, but also because I don't disagree with him. But in writing this novel, Berliner Ensemble, um, I wasn't necessarily attempting to shape collective memories, necessarily, uh, but rather to try and give a shape to my own understanding of particular historical legacies, um, the collective memories of historical events or moments, my own understanding of those collective memories. Um, and the shape, of course, is the novel itself. 
the story it tells, the themes that arise in different forms across the novel, um, and the ways in which that combination of things confirms, challenges, and complicates, hopefully, uh, various understandings of those events, memories, and legacies. Um, I'm not trying to particularly be um, full of myself or a jerk or anything, but that's the kind of ambitious challenge, and it seemed ambitious to me at the time and still does, actually, um, that I set for myself with this novel, not necessarily with a view to affecting anybody else's understanding, um, except for my own, again, to give shape to my own understanding of all these disparate ideas kind of flying around me and, and that I was trying to process. Um, of course, there is, to a certain extent, it's a bit of a lie that I wasn't trying to shape anyone else's understanding because, of course, any novelist wants people to read their novels. It's, it's why you pursue publication and so on. Um, but also, because that's the part uh, of the contribution that any novel makes to contemporary debates that, that Dan Stone was talking about. A novel is essentially a focal point in and for a conversation. Um, or rather, it's a focal point in and for a network of conversations. Those conversations happen between a writer and a reader in the first instance. You know, the, the, the novel is what I've written, and you, the reader, reads the thing, and it's the kind of conversation piece between us. Um, but it's also a conversation between readers and other readers, whether they're in <laughs> lectures, whether they're in seminars at universities, in reading groups that people organize, or just people who casually meet and have read the same book. Um, and if I don't sound too full of you know, the use of literature here, that um, it's also the focal point in a conversation that a society has with itself, about itself, and its histories. Um, that's the ideal, anyway, and I, I think it is one that works. Um, in reality as well. Um, that's quite a lot of, um, as I said, it's quite an ambitious thing to want to do with a novel. So then there's a kind of practical question of how, how did I want to accomplish these things by sitting down at a computer every day and typing words into it? Um, and the first thing I um, thought about was that I didn't want to write a historical novel, hence the non-historical on, uh, on the projection there. Um, Though I don't have any problem with historical novels, I should put that out there as well. Um, but there's three general reasons why I didn't want <coughs> to write a historical novel. One of them was just simply a practical thing. There was there's too many different historical moments, eras, and ideas that I wanted to deal with. Again, those illustrations of the victory column and the um, current finance ministry in Berlin is a good indication of the kinds of eras that spread out over the course of the history of a single city. Um, I wanted to deal with as many of these as I could, and so to locate a novel in a single past era would force me to put other ideas from other eras into the novel plot-wise in artificial ways that I wasn't very comfortable with, and to span it across a couple of hundred years or so to try and capture all these eras of history is not really the thing I'm very good at, so I didn't really want to try and create some huge saga. Um, the next reason I didn't want to do that is I often have a sense of historical novels. Um, there's a danger with them that basically they aren't really novels about the past. But a novel set in whatever year, 1690, which I've just pulled out of the top of my head, isn't really about 1690, but rather it's a novel about the present and cloaked in the costumes of the past, or that it's really just a novel about the present's view of the past again, using the costumes of the past. Um, 
And at least from my own aesthetic views, my own aesthetic motivations for writing a novel, um, this seemed like a dangerous path. Um, I think it leads, or can lead, to a misshaping of memory. Not a shaping of memory, but a misshaping of memory. And there's, a, there's possibly a dishonesty in misshaping memory in this way through a fiction. Um, and I'm sure this comment is one that would probably make historical novelists and probably readers who enjoy historical novels howl in indignation. But um, I think it's actually a conversation or an argument that would be worth having, albeit probably not right now because you know, we don't have all evening. Um, the other thing that's really important to me here is this presence of history that I've talked about several times. The idea that we live, whether we consciously address it or not, in particular, um, again, with Berlin as the focus, with the legacies and collective memories of history and that our understanding of ourselves is based on those things, that, that history is a present power in the present. Um, uh, that, that again, these, these, this, your idea, or one's idea of history, of histories, um, whether they're misshapen or not, actually, um, are real things that you need to face, investigate, challenge. Um, that, to me, was the most important thing. So I decided that I would set this novel in the present. As it turned out, I set it in the nearest future, for mostly for practical reasons. Because um, I thought this would allow me to portray and dramatize these, the legacies of, just to pick an example, um, Hitler or Bismarck, in terms of the building and collapse of the Berlin Wall. I could then take <coughs> the legacies and so on of Hitler and Bismarck and the Berlin Wall in terms of this kind of post-September 11, 2001 world that I described superficially at the beginning of, of this talk. Um, the, the global war on terror is something that is actually bound up in these things in some way that I could put them into a shape that would that would allow me to investigate how they might be bound up in some way to one another, um, both implicitly and explicitly through the, through the plot of the novel. And so the result of all this stuff um, is, a, is a historical novel, or maybe not a historical novel the way we usually say a historical novel, but rather a novel about history um, set in the future, reflecting on the present day. Um, that's kind of all I want to say about about the history and the issues reading into the novel. What I'd really like to do is, is actually read this chapter uh, from Berliner Ensemble. Um, of course, it's, this, this chapter um, comes from the middle of the novel, so there's a whole lot of things that, that have happened already, and there's a whole lot of things that will happen. So I, I've, I've written out a few words just to provide some context before I start reading. So, um, 7th of November is the central chapter, both in terms of plot and thematic content of Berliner Ensemble. It's set approximately 30 years following the fall of the Berlin Wall. The novel follows um, Peter Kokemus, a young American who shortly after moving to Berlin is coerced into involvement with a small terrorist group in a Berlin that's teetering on the edge of social and economic collapse. Uh, the group, <laughs> comprised of young Berliners of both East and West, all of whom were infants or small children in 1989, blows up the Reichstag, that happens right at the beginning of the novel, um, as well as a series of post offices and historical monuments in Berlin. Peter spends much of the novel being coerced into various violent activities and tries throughout to convince himself that he understands why he's involved and that he wants to be involved in the work of the group. 
Um, in the climactic scenes at the end of the novel, Peter will find himself kidnapped, drugged, and repeatedly threatened by the group. Uh, in the scene that immediately precedes this chapter that I'm going to read, uh, Peter's been forced by Matthias, who's the kind of intimidating and quite emotionally erratic leader of the terrorist group, um, to shoot in the knee a young man who they caught pickpocketing, hard to say, pickpocketing patrons in a bar. That's pretty bad writing. Um, anyway, there was a guy who was, who was stealing from people, and they caught him, and, and they made this big moral stance, and, and Peter was forced to shoot this guy in the knee. Um, one of the tensions running through the novel is whether the scene included here, um, which I'm going to read, as well as other incidents and encounters actually happen, or whether Peter's hallucinating them. Uh, and this tension leaks thematically to the historical events about which Peter reads, the political events around him in the novel, uh, most of which he only experiences through newspaper reports. So there's quite a volatile political situation in, in Berlin that I've depicted, and, and he's untouched by it, except that he keeps reading newspaper articles. Um, Peter's basically a, a naive, unreflective young man uh, who finds himself at the center of a complex intersection of personal, social, historical, and geopolitical events without really understanding his own role in those events. And I, I think that's probably more than enough um, to lead you into this, this chapter, which is called 7th of November. Peter called in sick for the entire next week and only left the apartment to go to the corner shop to buy his daily newspaper. He scoured the paper every day looking for a report about the shooting. He wasn't worried about being caught, no. There was little to go on, even if the musicians had been able to give a description. He wanted to see the story, though. He wanted to know how it would be described by someone else. Wanted it in print, a validation of what he'd done as though it hadn't happened unless it appeared in the newspaper. But it went unreported. Instead, the papers were filled with the numbers from the latest layoffs, with photographs of the metal workers' union marching down Karl-Liebknechtstrasse demanding job and pension guarantees and demanding Chancellor Detweiler either step in to help or resign. They were filled with the commentary on the latest expert reports about Islamist motivations in Germany and with speculation on whether the government could convince NATO or the EU or the UN to let it bomb a variety of suspected terrorist camps in a range of Middle East and Asian countries which is what the majority of the public, constitutional questions or not, wanted. Peter cut out the articles and added them to the stack on his windowsill, weighing them down with the scissors. There were long hours when Peter realized he was back to the beginning when he first arrived alone in Berlin. He would sit in the window and stare at the building across the street, the exposed bricks where the facade had crumbled away. Without the group, he didn't have much to do, wasn't living much of a life. Even with the group, he wasn't. He thought about going back to that bookshop, maybe to find another history or just to talk to somebody, but he didn't. One evening he decided to write a letter to his sister and took out a piece of paper. He sat at the kitchen table, yellow light splashed across the white page, but didn't write anything, not even a date, a place, not even Dear April. What was he supposed to say? I'm a terrorist, but was he? I'm a criminal, I'm a thug. He sat for an hour and stared at the blank page, holding a capped ballpoint pen. He wrote nothing. After an hour, he crumpled the empty sheet and tossed it onto the windowsill, opposite his stack of clippings. Other days, he looked at the dates on the newspaper mastheads and wondered how long before Matthias and Joachim returned and someone knocked on his door to tell him it was time to do something. And this was only the first few days. He might have to sit alone, he realized, for a month, for two or three months. He wanted to go to the apartment in Christinenstrasse. He wanted to see if Heike was there, but he know, knew he couldn't. He knew she'd be furious if he showed up, or maybe she wouldn't, but Matthias would find out, and Matthias would be furious, and Matthias had the gun. And so, Peter found himself taking to the sidewalks again, 
wandering the densely packed streets of Prenzlauerberg and up into Pankow to Vedi. He didn't take the history book with him any longer. He just walked, looking at the city as it was, not as it had been, or without trying to imagine how it had been. Every bench seemed occupied by someone in worn-out clothes or wrapped in a ragged sleeping bag, young and old, faces gray with the Berlin air. Another day he might walk past the chipping paint of the East Side Gallery murals and over the bridge, the filthy river spread underneath into Kreuzberg. On each of these walks he would pass at least one blown-out post office. Not on purpose. He didn't know where the others had placed their bombs, and sometimes it didn't occur to him that he was returning to his own bomb sites. But he would turn a corner, and there was the crime scene tape, the plywood hoardings, sometimes plastered with posters advertising concerts, clubs, or other events, as though these, as though these blank spaces were just billboards. Peter would step around the torn-up concrete and look at the black streaks that radiated across the stone buildings. People passed by and didn't even glance at it, or at him. Matthias had said their violence would crawl between people's memories, perceptions of their city, but these blackened post offices were no constant reminder of terror. They'd already melted into the background, part of the shifting landscape, too unimportant in comparison with the need to find a job, the need to feed the children, the need for another drink. Just another scar on the face of a city that already bore so many. He went to Alexanderplatz, not to return to the scene of the crime, uh, but to ride the carousel he'd seen there. It was something to do. He paid two euros and sat on a plastic white horse, and with a handful of children scattered on the other horses, riding around and counting the number of times it made a complete revolution as he watched Alexanderplatz spin past. There the bank, there the row of shops in the hotel, the department store, train station and TV tower, the Peter Barons blocks, the world clock, Henselman's house des Lehrers, and then back to the bank, 360 degrees, bank, shops, hotel, stores, station, tower, blocks, clock, house des Lehrers, bank, again and again and again, the horse rising and falling on its hydraulic pump seven times around in the few minutes that his two euros had purchased the mechanical organ music repeating its themes in hackneyed canon. And sometime in the first week or two after the bank, he arrived in Treptower Park and was standing beneath the stone archway that demanded, in Russian and German, eternal glory to the heroes who have fallen for the freedom and independence of the socialist homeland. He didn't have the book, but he'd read about this memorial. He knew it had been built in 1949, the same year as the founding of the GDR, by soldiers of the Red Army, building a memorial and cemetery for their own dead comrades. He wondered whether glory existed at all, let alone could last eternally, and whether eternal glory died with the temporary socialist homeland for which it had supposedly been earned. Whether Matthias was only fighting for a similar, transient glory, to regain for his father a socialist homeland he had never known himself, or to create, for whom? A new utopia that would never exist. But maybe that didn't matter. Better to fight and recognize what you were fighting for could only ever be approached, step by step, without the final step, the step of arrival, ever being made, than to give up even before the fight, or worse, to use it as an excuse to sit on your ass doing nothing, as long as prices remained low enough, as long as the sprinklers kept the grass green. He walked through the arch and down the cobbled pathway that led to a stone sculpture of a woman kneeling on a red marble plinth, mourning, he supposed, for those heroes, glorious, eternal, fallen. And that was the problem. At home, nobody had room for heroes behind, beyond home run hitters and touchdown throwers beyond people who smiled and praised God through diseases that ravaged them or drunk drivers who crippled them, none of whom were heroes any more than lottery winners or businessmen who paid for lakeside property and Cancun vacations with stock options, annual bonuses, and laundered money. They would apply the word hero to anything and everything until the word was empty, meaningless, and a president could be demanded he called a hero because he staged photo ops on military bases and aircraft carriers with firefighters, fighters, 
wearing a bomber jacket or a helmet to make himself look like one, while all he did was sign the papers that sent more young men and women to deserts to kill and die, neither glorious nor eternal nor heroic, merely courageous and wasted. And the collective apathy that fuels the engine allows it to turn ever onward, but neither forward nor back, neither progression nor regression. That wasn't anything heroic either. Peter looked down at the, the memorial to the soldier on the hill, clutching a child in his arms, driving his sword through the shattered swastika. That was a hero. That was action. That wasn't sitting back. That was a real response to a real threat, not simple revenge against an innocent and manufactured enemy. Peter, excuse me, Peter wandered the stone landscape, the stone depictions of people working, fighting, dying, and read the words of Stalin etched into the 16 coffin-like sculptures. It told Peter a story he knew was propaganda, but nonetheless held the echoes of something Matthias had said that night in the apartment, that people would only put up with so much clamping. Here was the story of people resisting the threat of Hitler's clamp. But of course, the part that was missing in this account, under another clamp. But hadn't they thrown that clamp off too? It wasn't Gorbachev who tore down the wall. And if history had shown that people will bear an unbelievable amount of pressure, then being the catalyst to more pressure, more restriction, was that not only speeding towards the day when pressure released, exploded like the Reichstag, like the post offices, like whatever they blew up next, exploded into a new fight, a new struggle? And if people got hurt along the way, they were the casualties on a road to heroism, like those carved into these stones and buried under this grass. Soldiers, laborers, women with rifles, people who would be remembered, who would be part of a new story of eternal glory in the years long beyond this current struggle. It made sense to Peter. He wanted to go home, to write it down, to make himself a manifesto, make it for all of them, Heike, Matthias, Joachim, to show when they returned that he was no longer an addition to, but an integral part of the group, the mission, the war. Yes. Sometime during this reverie, the memorial had begun to fill, slowly at first a trickle, then in larger groups and numbers, with old women stooped, their heads covered, large dark shawls wrapped over their shoulders, some with canes, all carrying flowers. They set their bouquets around the base of the hill upon which the soldiers stood. The women filled the vast flat area between the soldier and the steps that led to the monumental red marble sculptures of flags towering halfway between the hill and the sculpture of the mourning woman. Hundreds. Peter couldn't be sure he remembered seeing any of them arrive, but now they surrounded him. He was a stone in a sea of old women chattering in Russian, incomprehensible to Peter, laying their flowers, pressing handkerchiefs to the corners of their eyes. It was cold and gray, but many had spread blankets and sat down, unpacking food, black breads, meats, vodka. One of the women, sitting on a red blanket with a group of three others, beckoned to Peter. He watched her motioning, short, sharp flicks of her wrist with a pointed finger. It took a moment before he realized she was gesturing to him. He walked over, stopping three times to avoid processions of women, clutching flowers and heading toward the hill with the soldier. She said something, smiling broadly, her arms spreading wide and then bringing them back together. It reminded Peter of Sunday school when he was a boy, singing, he's got the whole world in his hands, but he didn't understand what she'd said. She repeated her words, now nodding, and Peter understood he should sit. She said something else, though all Peter could understand was that it was something else. While sweeping her arm across the red blanket, indicating this assortment of bread, meat, beets, and fish eggs. I, Peter pressed his fingertips against his chest. I don't speak Russian. The women all laughed, open mouths, rocking back. One of them clapped, and another patted Peter's shoulder. The one who had called him over repeated whatever she'd said in Russian, pointed with both hands, palms up at the food, indicated Peter again in mind, putting food in her, in her mouth. Eat, American friend, she 
she said in a thick accent. Peter took a slice of the black bread and spread a small spoonful of the fish eggs onto it. The women watched Peter take the first bite, studying his expression as though waiting for the next bingo number. He nodded and chewed and swallowed. It's good, he said. It's good, they repeated as a broken chorus. The woman to his right patted his shoulder again, and they all began eating, talking to each other between bites, gesturing to Peter to continue eating. There weren't any cups, but the women passed a bottle of vodka as though it were a joint, taking a swig, continuing conversation, waving the bottle, taking another swig, and passing it along to the next woman. The entire square between the marble flags and soldier was littered with flowers and picnicking women, the seagull sounds of their chatter filtering up into the trees that ring the memorial. It was like the 4th of July, Peter thought, except it was the 7th of November, a different celebration of nationhood. In a late autumn afternoon, so the sky was dark with clouds, the trees were mostly leafless, and the celebrants, rather than wearing shorts and t-shirts, were wrapped in the wool coats, shawls, and fur hats of autumn. No stars, no stripes, no hammers, no sickles. Old women who had laid flowers and were now sharing bread and meat and drink and conversation. And although there were no fireworks, the chatter was loud, the conversations animated enough that nobody heard the far-off shouts, <coughs> and nobody heard them get louder. Nobody paused to decode what was being said until it was too late. The men appeared on the terrace above the square, the marble hammer and sickle flags as their backup, backdrop as they stood and waited. It was several minutes before Peter and the women noticed them, but when they did, the noise dissipated like a wave retreating from a beach, unrolling from one end to the other until the silence was cut only by an airplane passing high above. It was hard to tell how many there were. Only a few rows could be seen from the lower level. Most of them were shaven-headed and wearing regulation uniform of white t-shirt, blue jeans, red suspenders, white laces on black boots. But some were wearing suits, looked no different than any banker or lawyer on his way to work. And these were the more terrifying as they descended the steps en masse, because they seemed the unknown quantity, the part that didn't fit in. The women knew what to expect from the skinheads, and since there was no time and no place to run, they prepared themselves for what would come, tensing their aging muscles, bringing their arms across their faces, enacting the movements like half-remembered drills of an ineffective martial art. The neo-Nazis marched in perfect formation, and their chant re-emerged, Ein Land, Ein Volk, a tired and meaningless statement, a timeless excuse responsible for more pain and death than a collection of words should be allowed. When they met the first group of picnickers, it was with their fists and their feet. The formation broke and they dispersed through the memorial, a blur of white and red and blue and black, a collage of fists and boots and shaven heads, punctuated by the occasional suit, kicking just as hard with their wing-tipped feet, hitting just as hard with their manicured hands. And the women received the blows uncomplaining, their old, liver-spotted arms, no protection from the kicks, their red blankets not softening the falls, and no moan of pain, no cry for help, just the ugly thump as boots connected with skulls, as fists sunk into flesh, as the daughters of Russia suffered for their history without being given the chance to object that it might not belong to them. In the middle sat Peter, unmoving, invisible, unnoticed and untouched, even as his dining companions fell bleeding. The action around him stuttered and jerked, moving now in real time, now in slow motion, slamming into fast forward. It was a pageant, a dance, a violent choreography, a noiseless soundtrack, a dumb show, shadow theater, stage for his sole entertainment. No lesson, no history book, no statistics or dates or famous names, no cathartic release or tragic epiphany, no rescuing hero or deus ex machina, just a stupid, pointless exhibition for Peter's benefit, about which he would tell no one, and that would haunt him forever, because he was the only one who would ever know, and he would try, 
but fail to understand. Thank you. Kaiser Palace, which 
no one quite is sure what to, they're going to use it for. They don't have a Kaiser to put in it. Um, it's been, with a straight face, suggested it become a shopping mall, um, which geographically, I guess, would make sense. It's in the middle of town, and lots of tourists pass through. But it's one of those weird things, you know. Um, I think it sustained quite a bit of damage in the in the Second World War, but I mean, it was a huge building. There's not enough to, to destroy it, and then you know, it's, it was obviously a political yeah. motivation to blow it up, and they they said as much at the time. Um, I don't know whether whether then erasing the one thing they built in place of it is any more or less good than what they did. It seems like it's kind of two wrongs not quite making it right to my mind. But except for one bit, they left one bit standing. Oh yeah, the Karl Liebknecht so um, balcony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, it's, it's, it's just interesting, the whole thing, I mean, think of the history of memories, the, the, is obviously the, the, the new communist regime wanted to obliterate yeah. the, 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 the memory of the Kaiser. Um, at, the, at the very beginning of, of this novel, um, the day after Peter arrives in Berlin, he actually walks past that site, and they're, they're digging the foundation for the new palace, and he's looking at the architect's drawings and thinking there's no way they're ever going to finish this thing. Um, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's set in the future, there, um, what he's doing is, is cutting up things that he's been participating in. He's basically cutting up the new history, the, like the bombing. They bombed the Reichstag, um, which is of course an echo of the Reichstag being burned by the Nazis. But um, and they blow up post office and they blow up some other memorials. And, and he's, so he's kind of cutting his own history in those scenes. I, I don't use actual um, historical events such as the blowing up of the Kaiser Palace or Kristallnacht or the book burning or anything. I mean, nothing like that is actually cut out of a newspaper. In it. Um, that stuff is always referred to in slightly different ways. It's in conversations rather than, than actual history. Is that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I just wonder how much actual historical facts you Oh, how many actual historical facts? Oh, quite a lot. Um, but like we're doing now, they basically they talk about them rather than experience them. Which is the, for me was the key difference. I don't, I'm not. I don't necessarily recreate uh, the historical moments. Did you have your hand up? Sorry. Yeah. Yes, I did. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You can. You can <laughs> Yeah. 
is very well known, but what I found very interesting as well is how the European or the British point of view of Germany is equally very much solely focused on the Second World War. So however the British viewer looks at Germany, it will always be through a lens of the Second World War. So what I found very interesting, if you go to any bookshop in the UK, you'll find shelves of Second World War history, but maybe one on the colonial history, which is much, much longer. So um, I think that it would be really interesting to look at how at history, how British history looks at German history <laughs> from a meta perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, this was my comment. So maybe you can tell me something about the 30 years. The 30 years, yeah. <laughs> I was just reminding myself the question. Um, I'm not sure my, my answer will be entirely satisfying. Part of it was, I mean, I, I guess it relates to, I'm going to answer it in a long way that might still be unsatisfying. Um, as I said briefly before I started the reading, I wanted to set it, I intended to kind of set it in the present tense, and then I, the present tense, the present day um, is written in the past tense. Um, and I quickly decided not to, basically to, um, I think because Merkel was, was elected not long after I started actually writing this, you know, writing the manuscript, and I thought it seemed a bit disingenuous to, um, I didn't just didn't want to, I didn't want to like make out that when the, the stuff that happens in the present tense of the novel was somehow being like blamed on her. Uh, so I wanted to kind of almost make it ahistorical in that respect. Um, so I said, okay, I'll set a bit in the future. And then I thought, well, 30 years was basically um, not much more thought was put into it other than um, perhaps it's, it's um, implicitly exactly what you, what you were raising, that it was long enough, but not too long. And um, the people who are the protagonists of the novel are the right age. Because I didn't want them to be, I didn't want them to be the old women at Trek Tower Park. Who, who would have been adults watching Berlin Wall coming down, or maybe chipping at it themselves, or running through Bonhomme Strasse? I wanted them to be people who really had no actual, you know, conscious experiences. And they all talk in the novel about being held like they have photographs of their parents holding them as babies by the wall. And you know, one of them is from Gostock, and her, her her parents broke down that day, and that kind of stuff. Um, and so it was really it was. Again, this may be just implicitly confirming what you're saying, is that, that so that their own personal claim to it was minimal. It was a but the cultural claim was a bit more at the center of it. They're inheritors of this stuff rather than than the actors in the history of it, of everything really, including the Berlin Wall. Which I think interesting. I think you're you're maybe right about this thirty years thing, but um, you know thereabouts. Um, on the other hand, there are some things that are just so so obviously part of history immediately. Something like the Berlin Wall coming down it was like it was like a historical event as it was happening in some strange way, in the way that like once we got over the being you know our minds being obliterated by shock of September 11th, um, it suddenly was a historical moment as it was happening. You know, it was like, it was history already. It was like, you, know, the, you watch the thing repeating and repeating and repeating and realize that there was gonna be, we're gonna spend the next 100 years talking about wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was just like, you could project the history out from it, which is also, again, like kind of what I was thinking about in terms of making a novel out of all this stuff. But as you said, it's 
start, it wasn't part of our, of our yeah. school curri uh, curriculum. So it's something very interesting when an event starts <coughs> being remembered. Yeah, <coughs> absolutely. I found it, in, I was in Weimar last week, and one of the interesting things is, is that you can sit there in a bus stop and catch a bus to Buchenwald. You can go to Munich and catch a bus to Dachau. Yeah. And you would have thought that if somebody was was almost as a counterfactual to your uh, to your your thesis is, uh, or your your storyline, is that if somebody was sort of going to uh, erase a memory, mm -hmm. the people who haven't erased Buchenwald are remembering it from before it was notorious for being a concentration camp. Yeah. So that so that the, the people of Weimar, when they're looking at the word Buchenwald, are not. Not creating, as it were, the same image. I mean, mm. it was quite chilling. I was sitting there, and a bus comes along, and it says, Book of that. And you sort of go, My word, you know, this is extraordinary. And when you think of the British experience, you know, when we had a nuclear experience in, uh, up in the northwest, and the, the, the nuclear power station was renamed, mm -hmm. you know, as it were, to, to reshape, as mm. it were, or to obliterate the memory. Mm. And it just seems to me that, that the idea of, of a of a single memory, you know, if you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 you, you blow up this post office because it, there's a single memory. Yeah. I'm not so sure about that. Well, no, no, neither am I. And it's <coughs> always about multiple memories. The, I, I totally agree with you. Actually, they, they name all, rename all the streets in Berlin. They've gotten so many renames, I don't think anyone knows. You know, well, everyone does know, but I, I, my little act of subversion was to just rename the streets back to some of their old East German names for fun. No one will ever notice. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, interestingly enough, again in, uh, in, uh, in Weimar, the uh, East German uh, names are still kept there. You know, Thorman Street and uh, Strasser and, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. Uh, and it, that is really quite... Yeah. Every place is uh, associated with somebody very young, Gertrude Schiller, but also the dignitaries from the GDR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, do you want me to comment? Yeah, yeah because I don't know much about it. I don't know much about it. Well, yeah, I could, I could blow a lot of hot air about that for a long time. I mean, but I, I guess I was alluding to, to its slightly more, um, well, I don't know, how do I start answering Let me just answer it in a slightly obnoxious way. It's this, when, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm not meaning to be rude, but, um, and I don't think I will be. Um, because I'm polite. Uh, it, it's a complicated thing because it, it, you know, it, it seems to all be centered on this film, uh, uh, Goodbye Lenin. Um, and it seems to me, to some degree, misunderstandings of that film. This is the obnoxious part. This guy whose name constantly escapes me, who made uh, the lives of others. Um, von Donnerschmann. Yeah, von something von like that. Um, a guy who, who was, is a very privileged man from West, <coughs> West Germany. Um, who recreated, maybe this points to my, my issue with, um, again, you're going to get a much larger, longer answer than you bargained for, um, my, my problem with kind of historical fiction um, is, you know, he said he made this thing that is just a, it looks just like East Berlin in the time that it's set <coughs> in the 80s, and, and basically has a single-minded thing of saying the East Germans were horrible. Um, but in an interview, this is the obnoxious part, he said, well, all these films are being made 
um, about East Germany, like, like Goodbye Life was actually also directed by a West German, um, um, that sh show the GDR as though it were a fun place and, um, and I want to correct that. And that seems to be a misunderstanding of that, of that film because it, the, the, the nostalgia for it is a nostalgia for products, first of all, mostly. It's, you know, which are really good, actually, and still exist. It's, it's one of these, like, domain marks. Um, and, and actually, the, the, the opening scene of that film is a, a woman, you know, collapsing in front of a, a police action against peacefully demonstrating citizens and her son not being allowed to attend to her. That doesn't strike me as a fun-loving portrayal of the East German state, oh, particularly. And, and um, I... But it, it was also kind of the beginning point of this thing I alluded to briefly in my in my preamble about about the, the erasure of of the culture of, of this country that existed for forty years and and it was a, in some ways a willful erasure of it and, and people wanting to claim that back and I think the first impulse was to do it in a nostalgic way I think that's um, reasonable and to be expected. And then the next steps, which as I, I mentioned, one historian, um, Vola, who is to then start looking at it more seriously. And, and, and he wrote a great book called, um, what is it called? It's about every, it's a history of everyday life in East Germany. It's like 600 pages of just, this is what people ate, and this is what happened when this changed. And like, you know, they couldn't get coffee, so they drank this. And it's just, I mean, for some people, probably really tedious for me, totally riveting. There's a museum of the GDR in Berlin now, which is a very new enterprise. And um, so I guess, you know, this, this Ostalgie is, is something that's still a bit complicated and has a tendency in some among some people to be misinterpreted. I think those people who misinterpret it tend to be people who, who don't have any experience of, of having lived in the place. I mean, I don't either, but um, as a friend of mine said, you know, I had a nice childhood. <laughs> I think the word that came to mind was carpet bagging. Mm -hmm. uh, carpet bagging, the way that the West took over the East was the many similarities mm -hmm. the way the uh, Northern USA took over the South yeah. after the Civil War. Yeah.
Yeah, but I think there's an issue of mistaking melodrama and a pretty black and white melodrama for every day. It's a, and, and this guy was very deliberately presenting this film as as every day. This is this is what it was like in this oppressive hell. I mean, it's, you know. Oh yeah, the woman and the dog. I almost stopped myself. Um, the woman and the dog um, is actually Heike, who's mentioned a few times. She's one of the terrorist leaders, uh, which is why she doesn't want a dog to recognize her, because she's a wanted terror. Everyone thinks she's dead, actually. They deliberately got her filmed on CCTV outside the Reichstag to give the impression that she'd been blown up a bit. Um, why the neo-Nazis? It's, again, this, this chapter is it's the shortest chapter of, I think, seven in the novel sits physically in the middle of it, um, but also thematically in the middle, and it's, um, it's a, it'd be hard to explain without actually getting really boring uh, for a while, but it's kind of a, it's a culmination thematically of a, of a lot of things that have been coming to bear and have been escalating up to this point. I, I can't really give a better answer than that without going on for longer than is probably necessary. I've got sort of a question. Sort of a question. Sort of a question. Can you phrase it as a question? I'm not sure I can. <laughs> there's two Give things. A little up top. Yeah, there's two things out there. That, 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 there's two things that we uh, process the thing from different angles. Yeah. Uh, and it's partially about writing, I think. Mm -hmm. So one is I was wondering when you were talking, uh, particularly discussing the lives of others and also Berlin's history, the sense of um, uh, Berlin and Germany having a sort of unmasterable past. That's mm -hmm. a cliche. So it's something. Mm -hmm very complicated and difficult about Berlin history, which is yeah. not celebrated the same way as landmarks in London might yeah. be. So that's one thing. And also when you were talking about questions, a sense of sort of afterwardsness, a sense of always being after things. And even mm. when you were talking about 9-11, you're saying, even as you're watching it, it's suddenly become historical while you're watching it. So you're sort of, it's, even as it's happening, as it were, the dust not settling, you're already afterwards eyesing. Does that make sense? It's sort of seeing it in the past, even though it's happening to you now. Um, and I'm wondering if there's something about that. That's a very different relationship to an event than a politician might have, or a I don't know another sort of. Is that I'm thinking about the, the article well, yeah, writing good. about something being linked together. Well, I maybe, I don't know if this is going to answer your non-question, but, <laughs> but if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, that it, cause I, and this is something else I was really conscious of while, while, while writing this thing, this novel, um, is it's also about these things happening, things that happen elsewhere, you know, it, not just in the past as another country, but, um, you know, 9-11, Unless you were there in the towers or whatever, and it happened somewhere else. Unless you were George W. Bush, who it happened to in quite an odd way, he was somewhere else, but not somewhere else at the same time. Cheney and that, those kind of people, or even Osama bin Laden, for that matter. Um, you know, people like us watched it on TV, and so it's really happening elsewhere, and it was something we watched happening to us. And but that doesn't mean it's not happening to yeah. us. And the, the I don't know if that, that's kind of just a garbled bunch of phrases. Right? Yeah, really but it's all there and not there at the same yeah. time, isn't it? And it's, and it's Sorry, I'm, I'm not necessarily promoting that 
as a correct way of seeing it, but it's one of the lines of, of argument that some of the people in this novel take that you know, what they want to do is actually make, I mean, that's the point of 9-11, bring it to America. Bring your imperialism to you. Whether that's defensible and correct and logical is another question. I'm not, I'm not defending Al Qaeda, um, but that's the kind of argument they're making. Well, you people get to sit here and watch stuff happen out to other people. This is what like when it happens to you. And then I'm also wondering about the thing you said quite earlier on about um, partial measures Dan's lecture two weeks ago, yeah. saying you, you, weren't, you weren't consciously trying to shape a sort of a European memory or anything like that, of course, but yeah. who would be trying to say that? No. But, but to shape understanding of the events of the past for yourself, yeah. again, I wonder whether is, is there's something interesting, isn't there, about writing, is there something interesting, this question, <laughs> about writing novels which is about trying to, to create a shape out of it in a way which is different from the way histor I mean, historians create shapes too, but with different rules. When historians couldn't set their history 20 years in the future right. from when they are, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and politicians don't, they try and shape narratives that they're victims of them. Mm -hmm. So there's something very interesting, isn't there, about, about being the person who wants to shape the narrative for yourself. Because I presume we all do that in our own private lives, we just don't mm -hmm. write novels out of it. Yeah, but it's because we all do that in our private lives that we read novels about stuff. Yeah. Because you're always looking for a shape in order to understand things one way or another. You know, communication that happens almost entirely through telling stories one way or another. So I think so I think East Germany, would you say that the negative views? So what I'm saying is are there any uh, East, East, East German novelists in the, in the light of the, of the, of the woman saying is, are, are they worth reading East German novels as opposed to were they, you know, were they just to the uh, ones that actually existed in East Germany yeah, while East Germany was going. The crystal wolves, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, is, is, is it, one of the sources of crystal wolf was, uh, in, 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 the, the books that she wrote at the time, it was a famous one, I forget, in 1963, mm. I know, the factory, young people, that young people, yeah. uh, I, mean, I don't know, just now, he said, oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I'm memories, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it worth, they're worth reading them, not just propaganda. Oh, no, I don't, not necessarily. I mean, I'm not an expert in East German literature or German literature at all, to be honest. Um, so I wouldn't want to say too much about that because I don't want to say anything that's incorrect. But I mean, I think, I think you know, to, to come back to, to Dan's lecture a couple weeks ago, these are always worth reading uh, because they tell you, they might not tell you anything useful about what was actually happening at that time, historically speaking, or whatever. They tell you something, though. You know, there's, there's, there's a story, there's, they tell you something about how things were being shaped, even if they, even if a novel is pure propaganda or isn't, you know, even if it's utterly nostalgic about East Germany or utterly condemning of it. They tell you Sh something Sh about it. I know Stephen Holmes was a bit, was a bit key to be a bit, a bit critical of the regime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I can't say much more than that, in fact. <laughs> At the start, got me thinking, and I was reminded of um, Patricia Highsmith novel, Stranger on the Train, and then that sort of slightly sweaty thing goes with all the characters <laughs> trying to find yeah. in the paper, my, my murder is in the paper. Yeah. And then I was thinking about the tremor of forgery and um, that person who's into American, American foreign policy coming up the radio waves and so on, which led us that sort of Highsmith type character who's yeah. in, in Europe in that strangely ambivalent sense of being sort of there and not there. 
made me think about the clash between America and the old world and so on. Obviously, you've got the American character in the middle here, and I wonder how yeah. far that played in your sort of thematic structuring of it. And well, Iceland nice in like particular, or just that those kind of ideas? Those kind of ideas. Yeah, um, I actually was, <laughs> when, when I came to, to write this carousel thing, which was something I think I ended up putting in during the redrafting of it, I was actually very conscious of that scene, particularly in the film of it, actually. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, you know, so be it. He's not going to fall off and have his glasses snatched. Is she a librarian in that? I think she is, or school, or a school teacher, teacher, or something. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, again, that, the, exactly those kinds of issues. The American in Europe are are absolutely foregrounded. He doesn't see himself necessarily as an American in Europe in that way at the beginning, and he's kind of it's demanded of him that he be that. Um, and was 9-11 the reaction to 9-11? American power in the world yeah. really transformed that, that old trope of the naive American Europe about yeah. history, was now America has history like... Yeah, whether, they, whether they're ignorant of it or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that people give him lectures on his own history in this, not long lectures, but... Thank you.